Father, do we ask that you would speak into our hearts what it is you want us to learn in this season. We pray that you'd accomplish your highest purposes, Lord, during this crisis around the earth. We pray, Lord, you'd also do a mighty work in your church during this time. We ask you, Lord, that you would cause us to really be able to receive your word right now and be people that really are ready for what's coming next. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Jesus rebuked the people in the first century for not understanding the times in which they lived. Let's look at this passage, Matthew chapter 16, verse 2 and 3. Jesus says this. He says, when it, is, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? We need to understand the times in which we are living, and we need to know how to respond in these times. Now, I'm going to really ask you now to really hang with me and pay close attention to these next 40 minutes or so. I want to ask you not to take a snack break, not to be distracted by anything going on in your house or your apartment, not to start another conversation, but to really listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Because I've, asked, I've been asked several times if I believe this COVID-19 has anything to do with end times. And my answer to that question is, yes, it does. And I want to explain to you why I have that conviction. But in order for you to really understand why I believe this is so, we need to set some biblical context here. See, there are actually four major factors that tell me that we're living in the last of the last days. Four factors. And this is the context by which I'm seeing what we're going through right now. So the first factor is the Israel factor. Now I want everyone in your, in your gathering right now or in your living room to say the Israel factor. Say it out loud. That is the first factor. Now, without the existence of Israel as a nation, we would not be able to say with certainty that we are living in the last of the last days. That single event, more than anything, is, is the most prominent sign that we're living in the final years before the return of Jesus. In fact, God's prophetic calendar, his end time plans has a lot to do with fulfilling certain promises that he made to Israel. In order for the prophesied end times events to occur, several things needed to happen in regard to Israel. And I want to just tell you what they, I'm going to mention six of them real quick, and I want to briefly point out what the Bible has to say about these six things that show us that we're living really in these last of the last days. First of all, the first thing that had to really happen for Israel, number one, is they must be living back in the promised land. Secondly, they must be living in control of Jerusalem. Thirdly, they must be living with a strong military. The Bible talks about all these things. Fourthly, they must be speaking Hebrew. Fifth, they must be keeping the Sabbath law again. And number six, they must be living with a functioning temple. 
Now, the Bible actually speaks to all of these things. Let's walk through it. You know, the most striking event in prophecy of end times really is the return of the Jews to their homeland to reestablish the state of Israel and to gain control of Jerusalem again. I want to give you a little background here, just a real quick synopsis of some history. In the first century, the world power, of course, was Rome. And Rome was intolerant and they were ruthless to any nations that did not submit to their iron fist, to their will. And in A.D. 66, there was a small group of Jews who complained because of the religious persecution that they were experiencing at Caesarea Maritime, the major Roman stronghold along the seacoast of Israel. So what did Rome do? Rome quickly sends a, an army to quell this disturbance at the coast. And war between Rome and Israel breaks out. And that, that war is going to last four years until we get to A.D. 70. This is an important date. Because in A.D. 70, now with three Roman legions made up of Arabs, Egyptians, and Syrians, the Roman army that finally breaks through the walls of Jerusalem in this war, and then they get to the temple compound, and they loot the temple, they destroy it, and they set it on fire. And at that point, the Jewish people are dispersed. And this begins the worldwide dispersion of the Jewish people that would last almost 1,900 years. But that's not the end of the story. Because that wasn't the end of God's plan for Israel. God had a plan that was prophesied that he would bring this dispersed people of Israel back to the promised land in the last days. That was promised by God. And in one day, in one day, Israel became a nation on May 14th, 1948. And they later gained control of Jerusalem in the Six-Day War in June 1967. And no prophetic sign is more dramatic or convincing than this. The Jews, think about this, they were scattered to the nations in A.D. 70. And some 1,900 years later, as it was prophesied, they are brought back home to the promised land. Here's what Isaiah 66 verse 8 says. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she was brought, she also brought forth her sons. In order for end time prophesied events to take place, Israel had to be back in the promised land and must be a nation. I want you to notice what the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 8. Here's what he says. He says, in the latter years, he's talking end times, in the latter years, Gog, who's the Antichrist, will come into the land of those, talking about Israel, those who are brought back and gathered from people, from the peoples, the nations, on the mountains of Israel, which have long, had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, where they were dispersed, 
And now all of them dwell safely. They're back in Israel. This was prophesied by Ezekiel, the prophet. Zechariah also prophesied this in chapter 12, verse 6. He says this, in that day, and he's talking about end times in this chapter. In that day, the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. They're back home. The Lord said that his people would return to the promised land and once again be a nation. And that is the case today. So the Jews must be back in the land of Israel. They must be living and controlling Jerusalem, living in it, controlling it, in order for the last day events to occur. And that right now is now a reality. That's the first thing. Second thing that had to happen with the Israel factor, again, everyone say the Israel factor. Second thing that had to happen is they had to be dwelling not only in the land, but with a very strong military. That was also prophesied. The prophet Zechariah foresaw a time in the last days when the forces of, of Israel would be a strong military force. Here's what he says in Zechariah 10, verse 5. They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. He goes on in Zechariah 12, verse 6 through 8. In that day, I'll make the clans of Judah like a fire pot in the woodpile. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. In other words, they're going to be almighty warriors, and the weakest one is going to be like mighty warrior David. And today, Israel is one, not only one of the most powerful military forces in the world, the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF, is the most powerful military in the entire Middle East. So Israel needs to be, number one, back in the land, and they are. They need to have a, a strong, powerful military, as prophesied, and they do. Thirdly, they've got to be speaking Hebrew again. They were scattered for 1,900 years among all these different people groups and all these different languages, but when they back in the land, it's prophesied they'll speak Hebrew again. By the way, the reestablishment of the Hebrew language as Israel's official language occurred on May 19, 1948. And if think about this, to establish an ancient language after 1,900 years being in all these other countries and all these other languages is quite miraculous. It is historic. In fact, many see this establishment of Hebrew in Israel as part of the fulfilling of this prophecy. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, here's what it says. Then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Another thing they needed to be doing is they need to be back in the land, and once again, they have to be abiding by the law of the Sabbath. That too is important here. In fact, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 through 20. He says this, talking about the last days when the Antichrist is, 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 sets himself in the temple in an abomination of desolation to be worshiped as God. He says this, when you see the abomination of desolation, then let those who are in Judea flee 
and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Why? Because they're, they are abiding by the Sabbath again. And that would impact travel dramatically. Today, the Sabbath on Saturdays is established as a national law, an official day of rest in Israel. But also, in order to fulfill end-time prophecy, there must be a rebuilt temple. Now, that has not yet occurred yet, but let me explain why that can happen so quickly. You know, first of all, remember, the Antichrist will come to the Jewish temple. He'll commit the abomination of desolation by setting himself up to be worshipped as God in this holy place. So there must be a rebuilt temple in order for that to happen. Matthew 24, verse 15, remember Jesus says this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, he will be in the holy place, the temple. Also, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul, talking about the Antichrist, says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So remember, the temple of Jerusalem did not exist since A.D. 70. It was totally destroyed. But right now there is a strong movement in Israel, and you can Google this, just Google the Temple Mount Faithful. There's tens of thousands of them that are ready to rebuild the temple. They have everything ready. They have the priest already trained. They have all the utensils already made. They have everything. They have the cornerstone. They've marched it around the city, ready to start the building. They are ready to rebuild the temple. When Tracy and I were in Jerusalem some years ago, I, we actually, I actually spoke to one of the Temple Mount faithful who showed me some of the utensils that are ready for the priest to use that follow the guidelines of the Old Testament. And as I was talking to him, he, he said, he looked at me, he said, he whispered, he said, and I've seen the Ark of the Covenant down in the tunnels below Temple Mount. I said, what? He said, yes, we were down there. We opened up one tunnel, we saw it. And right then there was a big Big controversy about us being under there. They thought we were going to blow up the Dome of the Rock. They closed it off for political pressure. Now, we can't go down there. But he said, but I saw it. Now, I don't know if he saw it or not. I do know, but I do want you to know the conviction of, of these Temple Mount faithful is to get this done and get it done quickly and put everything back in working order in the temple. So it could happen soon. It wouldn't take very much for them to be very busy and get that done. So not only does Israel need to be a nation in the promised land, now follow me, they got to be back in the land, they got to be controlling Jerusalem, and they are. They got to be speaking Hebrew, and they are. They have to have a strong military, and they do. And they have to be, have a functioning temple, and that can happen very, very quickly. But there's one more thing that needs to happen. They need to be surrounded by enemies who want to destroy them. They need to, according to biblical prophecy, the nations around them must hate them and want to destroy them. Is that the case today? Well, absolutely that's the case today. I want to read you the first six verses of Ezekiel chapter 38. And there are eight ancient names given to identify the coalition of nations that will come against Israel in the last days. And we know these nations. We know what these, who these are. Ezekiel tells us. Let's read it. Starting in verse 2. Son of man, 
Set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks in your, into your jaws, and I'll bring you out, and all of your army, horsemen, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Beth to Garma from the remotest parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Listen to this now. After many days, you'll be summoned. Listen to this. In the latter years, this is going to happen. In the latter years, you'll come into the land. These enemies come in against Israel. And you'll come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days. So Ezekiel, some 2,600 years ago, makes his prophecy of these nations that surround Israel in the last days. And we know some of these nations that he mentions right here in this passage that are going to come against Israel. Turkey, Iran, Sudan, Libya, that's four of them. Some of the other nations are mentioned in other Old Testament prophecies, but they're all, all the nations mentioned that are going to come against Israel in the last days are predominantly Muslim and want Israel wiped off the face of the earth. Again, I want you to keep in mind this. Keep in mind that when this prophecy was made by Ezekiel 2,600 years ago, that the religion of Islam didn't even exist yet. So you had to wonder, what's going to cause all these nations to be in agreement to come together and try to destroy Israel? Islam did not exist as a religion until the 7th century A.D., and now these prophecies make sense. They have that in common, all these surrounding nations, and that's why they hate Israel. So that's the first factor. This is so important because all these end-time things could not have happened without Israel being back in the land and all these things taking place and being surrounded by enemies that hate her and want to destroy her. That's why it's very different. People say the coronavirus, there's other pandemics in the past. What makes this different? What makes this different is all these other factors that are in place for the first time in history. Number one is the Israel factor. Say Israel factor again, out loud. And that leads us to the second factor that had to be in place. Number two is the Islamic factor. Everyone say Islamic factor. Here's what Revelation 17 tells us. It tells us what is going to happen in these last days against Israel. And it's going to be the Islamic factor is key here. It tells us this. Listen, Revelation 17 tells us something very important in verse 3. It says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, we don't have to guess what this symbolism means. So many people have. The Bible tells us what this means. Oftentimes, the Bible will give us a symbol and then tell us what it means. It does it in this case. What it's telling us right here is the final beast empire that's going to be led by the Antichrist. This final empire led by the Antichrist that's going to come against Israel at the end. It tells us about this empire that it has seven heads and ten horns. All right, what does that mean? It tells us 
And the book of Daniel tells us, first of all, the ten horns are a ten-kingdom confederation. There's going to be ten nations that have come together in a confederation to come against Israel to try to destroy her. What about the seven horns? What are the seven horns? The seven horns, the Bible tells us, are seven empires that have existed through history that, have, that all have tried to destroy Israel and all foreshadow the eighth empire that will try to destroy Israel that will be led by the Antichrist. All right, where does it say that? Let's see. Revelation 17, verse 9 through 11 says this. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And, here, listen to this. There are seven kings, seven kings of kingdoms. Five have fallen. Five of these kingdoms have already come and gone. One is, there's one kingdom right there, first century, that exists. And the other has not yet come. There's one coming after the first century. That would be the seventh one. And when it comes, it'll remain just a little while. Verse 11, the beast, listen to this now, the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth. So this seventh kingdom, which was and then was not, comes back as an eighth. And then he goes to destruction, but it will be destroyed. All right, so this, this passage, I'm going to go back over this, gives us great insight into the fact that before Jesus returns, there's going to be a total of eight Beast empires that have throughout history have tried to destroy Israel. And the eighth empire will be led by the Antichrist. All right? So what are these empires? Well, we know. It's not hard for us to do some basic history to find out what they are. The Bible tells, shows us what they are. The five empires that had already come and gone by the first century are, number one, the Egyptian empire, Number two, the Assyrian Empire. Number three, the Babylonian Empire. Number four, the Persian Empire. Number five, the Greek Empire. Those are the five that have already come. But then it says, and then now one is. Now in the first century, there's a sixth empire. What is it? Well, obviously, the sixth empire is Rome. It's very clearly that Rome ruled the Middle East, Northern Europe, and, I mean, Northern Africa, much of Europe at that time. So we know the sixth empire is the Roman Empire. Okay, so those are six empires. The seventh empire is the one we need to identify because that's the empire that will go away and come back as an eighth and be led by the Antichrist that come against Israel. Okay, so let me just go back over this again. The beast who once was and is not is an eighth king. I want to paraphrase that for you. The seventh beast empire that existed and then did not exist and went away. It's going to come back as an eighth empire. And so that eighth empire is going to be empire in the last days comes against Israel. So if we know what the seventh one was, we know it comes back as an eighth, and we'll know what to expect. Well, what empire, what empire followed Rome? Well, the empire that followed Rome is clearly the Turkish Ottoman Empire it's the empire that succeeded the Roman Empire and ruled over the entire Middle East, including Jerusalem, for nearly 500 years. 500 years. The Turkish Ottoman Empire existed right up to 1909, not that long ago. It's the only empire that fulfills the patterns necessary to be the seventh empire is the Turkish Ottoman Empire. 
Now, again, remember that the seventh empire goes away, and it went away. It went away in 1909. But it comes back as an eighth. It comes back. A resurrected empire comes back, and it will then be led by the Antichrist. Now, of course, this, this perfectly corresponds with all of the prophets' list of the nations that will war against Israel in the end. It makes perfect sense. There's something else you need, we need to know from history. The Turkish Ottoman Empire was the seat of the Islamic Caliphate. It was not until 1923 that the, the, caliphate, the caliphate was officially abolished. And today, throughout the whole Islamic world, there is a call for the restoration of the caliphate, the Islamic caliphate. Now, what is that? The caliph in Islam is kind of like the pope for the Muslims. The Muslims view the, the caliph as the vice regent of Allah on the earth. Today, the Islamic world is they're, they're calling for the restoration of the caliphate, the restoration of the caliph to come lead it. And the Bible teaches that someday now, if we put this all together, the Bible teaches someday soon the Islamic caliphate empire is going to be resurrected. And ultimately, it will be led by the Antichrist to come against Israel. Now, again, let's put these two together. In 1948, Israel became a nation after almost 1,900 years of worldwide dispersion. The devil tried to kill off the Jewish people through so all of these empires throughout history, all seven of them. But the seventh one is now going to come back as an eighth empire, the Islamic Caliphate, and it's going to try one more time. One more time. That empire will be a coalition of radical Muslim nations. Their leader of that empire will be the Antichrist. And that will be the empire that when Jesus comes back, he will destroy and set up his kingdom on the earth. And the fact, think about this. Now, the fact that we can watch this move towards this whole revived Islamic empire tells us that this time is drawing near. So we have two factors that really, really cause us to realize that we're living in these strategic days. The first factor is the Israel factor. Everyone say Israel factor. Second factor is the Islamic factor. Everyone say Islamic factor. All right. There's a third factor that tells us we're living in the last of the last days, and that is the great... Fulfillment of the Great Commission factor. Jesus, Jesus was asked by his disciples, when will be the end and when will, what will be the sign of your coming? Well, Jesus answers that question uh, with some birth pains and so forth, but he finally gets to this point. In Matthew 24, verse 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, all ethnos. And then... And then the end will come. So when the church has finally finished this task of the Great Commission, Christ will come again. The Word of God says this. Now, there are many Christian organizations around the world right now that are all working together to, to speed this up. There's more collaboration and coordination with ministries trying to fulfill the Great Commission in our lifetime than this has ever happened before. And for the first time in history, it's possible that it can happen in our lifetime. Some years ago, Wycliffe Bible Translators, along with several other mission agencies, came up with a plan they call the Vision 2025. 
course, it's 2020 right now. 2025, the vision was simply this, that every language group in the world, every people group in the world, every language group that still needs a translation will have one started by 2025. That's the plan. Now, it used to take 10, 15, sometimes 20 years to do a translation of the Bible in a certain language, but now with all of the computer programming and software that has been done, and a lot of it's been done by people of our own church family, a lot of that is actually enable us, enabling us right now to be able to not take 10 or 15 years to do a Bible translation, but less than a year to do a New Testament. So things are speeding up on the earth. It's speeding up for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, for God the Father to give His Son all He promised Him. And it can happen now for the first time in our lifetime. So that's the third factor, the Great Commission factor. I would say the Great Commission factor. All right, now we're finally to what we want to talk about, and that is this coronavirus. And that's factor number four is a natural disasters factor. Here's what Jesus says about the time leading up to his return. Luke chapter 21, verse 10. Then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines. Earthquakes, plagues, famines. Verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 8 of Matthew, Jesus says, but these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. So earthquakes, plagues, and famines will increase like birth pains before the return of Christ. Now, what makes, what makes the things happening right now different than all the times in history, all the earthquakes that ever happened, all the famines that ever happened, all the plagues that ever happened, is now the scene is set. That's what gives meaning to what's happening right now. Now you have the Israel factor, the Islamic factor, the Great Commission factor. For the first time, the stage is set. We have to see this very differently now. The context is very different. Jesus talks about certain birth pains that will lead up to his return. Now, Tracy and I have had four children. I must admit she did most of the work in the birthing process. But I did, I did coach her. We had our first child. In fact, I had a, I had a T-shirt said coach. And I'd be in there. We did Lamaze. You know, we were insane. We did Lamaze. And, and we were just, I did the breathing techniques. And I would coach her. And I, and I had a stopwatch. And we'd watch the contraction. I, I had a graph. And here's the contraction's coming, honey. Here it comes. And we'd watch it go up. Okay, you're at your peak. It'd peak out. I said, okay. And I'd, and I'd say, okay, you're at your peak. Now it's coming down. It's coming down. It's coming down. It's coming down. Okay, you can relax now. And then she's relaxed because that birth pain was over. But I know another one's coming because I'm a good coach. Another one's coming. And so it comes to the next one. So, oh, here comes another one. It's coming. It's coming. Like I need to tell her, right? Anyway, so here comes the next contraction. And what happens is the contractions become more and more intense and become more and more frequent. Well, Jesus says there are certain things that are going to be like that leading up to his return. Earthquakes, famines, plagues. He says they're going to become more frequent and more intense, leading up to his return. Now, earthquakes, actually the Greek word for earthquakes, seismos, is actually, literally just means shaking. And it was used of more than just what we call earthquakes today. It was used of earthquakes on land. A Greek word was also used of earthquakes at sea that caused tsunamis. It was used also of, of uh, hurricanes and typhoons, of violent storms. 
And so we would expect that we're going to have a lot more of these kinds of things, and they become more intense and more frequent. And sure enough, uh, we've seen that happen. And then there's also going to be an increase in famines. Now, 70 million people died of famines in the, in the 20th century. Now, statistics, of course, in the earlier centuries uh, are scarce, but they estimate that 2 million people died of famine, famines in the 17th century, 10 million in the 18th century, 25 million in the 19th century, and then 70 million in the 20th century. But right now, in fact, the UN announced this last Thursday that the coronavirus pandemic is going to push an additional 130 million people to the brink of starvation. And they expect that the famines are going to take hold, according to the UN, famines are expected to take hold in 36 more countries because of the coronavirus pandemic. Because it's causing an economic recession, there's a decline in aid, there's a collapse of oil prices. All these things are working together to cause famines. So when you add to the 821 million people already on earth chronically hungry, you get almost a billion people that are going to be in a dire situation on planet Earth. And so earthquakes, famines, plagues like birth pains, Jesus says. And finally, we're to coronavirus. Coronavirus, now we have the context. Now we're seeing a plague that's impacting the whole world, shut the whole world down. And it's in the context of the Israel factor, Islamic factor, Great Commission factor, so we view it very differently. Now, what we do know is that this birth pain will subside. It will subside. But it's only going to be followed by another one. It's only going to be followed by another birth pain. These are days in which we are living. So what are we to do? Well, Jesus wants us to see the birth pains, including COVID-19, as reminders and alerts that he's coming and we need to be ready. Jesus wants us to see these birth pains and recognize that they're pointing toward his return and we need to be ready while there's still time. So my question to you as we start to close here is, are you ready? Are you ready for the return of Christ? Are you ready for that? Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25, starting verse 1. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no, no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. So five of the ten had outward form of a lamp, but no power inward, no inward power. They had outward form of religion, but no internal power of the Holy Spirit. Their foolishness was to think that mere the mere form of a religious lamp would be sufficient. Or perhaps that power to light the lamp could be borrowed at the last minute, when in fact it, Jesus will tell us it can't be borrowed at all. goes on, verse 5. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. 
But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. So when the shout goes out to the bride, that the bridegroom is here, they trim their lamps. The foolish trim their empty lamps. Still no oil. Just outward forms, all they got. They trim their empty lamps. Then they ask the impossible, give us your oil. Give us from your oil. Now, the fact that the five wise virgins don't give them any oil isn't because they're selfish. That's not what's happening here. This parable is meant to teach the impossibility of borrowing faith from someone else. It means to teach the impossibility of borrowing the power of the Holy Spirit from someone else. See, there comes a time when it's going to be too late to get right with the Lord. It's going to be too late to, be, to get yourself ready for him. There comes a time when it's too late. Now, when the wise virgin, what the wise virgins are saying here is, is, is basically is this. We can't have faith for ourselves and faith for you. And we can't have an inner spiritual life for ourselves and have an inner spiritual life for you. That's not how it works. So in desperation, the foolish virgins who wasted their lives on just going through the motions of outward religion, they then run for the impossible. They run for instant end time faith. Matthew 25, verse 10. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in, went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. That's the most horrifying words you could ever hear. What terrifying words, the end of the age to hear. I never knew you. You're a part of the visible church. I mean, you, 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 know, you, you had outward form. You had lamps. You had religion. You had form, but you took no care of what was on the inside. You carried a lamp. You kept it shiny. Others looked at you from outside. They, you looked like you had an inner reality, a faith. But all you had was an empty lamp. And now you're about to face the one who sees right through the lamp and says, truly, truly, I said to you, I don't know you. What a horrifying moment. You don't want to hear those words. Many will, but you don't have to. And that's the good news. So I just want to ask you the question, in closing, do you know him? Not do you know about him. Do you know him? Do you know him? Jesus ends a parable with this warning, verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. There will be a suddenness to his return that will make it impossible to get ready the last minute. Let me say that again. 
there is going to be a suddenness to the return of Christ that's going to make it impossible for anyone to get ready the last minute. That's the whole point of this parable. Let me close with this last passage, Matthew 24, verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Listen to this, verse 39. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. They did not understand until the flood came. Then they understood. But it was too late. It was too late. Coronavirus, I believe, is a merciful warning from God that now is the time to get right with God before it is too late. Let's pray. Father, Father, you know where everyone is that is viewing this right now. You know where they are spiritually. You know those who are like the foolish virgins who aren't ready. Father, I just pray today would be the day that they would get themselves ready by turning to Jesus with full heart and soul as their Savior and their Lord. Full surrender to him who's coming and coming soon. We also pray, Lord, just ask you to remember mercy in the midst of this coronavirus. We ask that you would remove it off the earth in Jesus' name. We pray, Lord, that the church would really grow through this time all around the earth and that, Lord, there wouldn't be so many in the church that aren't ready, that we'd be a ready people and we'd be taking this time to lead many other people, friends, family, co-workers, classmates, to know you during this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.
Your cup.